you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. In December 1811, two households in the borough of Wapping, one of the docks districts of East London, were annihilated in a pair of brutal and apparently motiveless crimes. After the crimes, the murderer was disposed of in a novel in unusual fashion. Twenty years later, they were described in Thomas de Quincey's satirical essay on murder considered as one of the fine arts as the sublimest and most entire in their excellence that were ever committed. I'm Andrew Gable, and this is episode 65, The Ratcliffe Highway Murders. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. on the morning of December 7th, 1811, around 20 minutes past midnight, Margaret Jewell arrived at the house of her employer, Timothy Marr. Mr. Marr was the proprietor of a, cro- of a cloth and lace shop located at 29 Ratcliffe Highway in the London district of Wapping, at which address he lived with his wife Celia and their baby son. Jewell had been sent out shortly before midnight to run a few quick errands. Jewel said of the home when she returned, I found it closely shut up, and no light to be seen. I think I was out about twenty minutes. I rang the bell, and no one answered. I rang repeatedly. While I was at the door, the watchman went by on the other side of the way, with a person in charge. I certainly heard someone coming downstairs. I thought it was my master coming to let me in. I'm certain I heard the child cry very low. I rang again and knocked at the door with my foot repeatedly, when a man came up to the door and insulted me. I thought I would wait until the watchman came, which he shortly did, and call the hour of one. At the same time, he desired me to move on, not knowing who I was. I said I belonged to the house, and I thought it very strange I should be locked out. The watchman, George Olney, came over from the vicinity of Bett Street, and noticed that the pin fastening the window was not closed. He then joined Margaret in knocking on the door, ringing the bell, and calling to Mr. Marr through the keyhole. Some accounts state that when he called out that the pin was unfastened, a voice replied, All's well. John Murray, a pawnbroker next door at 30 Ratcliffe Highway, emerged from his house and inquired as to the problem. The watchman told him that the house was unsecured, and that the Mars were not answering. Murray told the watchman and the girl to keep trying to rouse the Mars. He then ran back into his house, went into the backyard, and climbed over the fence to the back door of the lace shop. He was surprised to find the back door wide open. He found a lit candle 
and picked it up as he made his way through the darkened shop. As Murray later said, Seeing the two doors open where Mr. Marr used to sleep, I called out, Marr, Marr, your window shutters are not fastened. But nobody answered me, and on account of its being the bedroom, I did not go in. With the candle, I went through the shop to the front door to let the watchman in. When I got to the door at the, at the foot of the stairs which leads into the shop, I saw the boy, James Gowan, lying dead on the floor, just within that door, and within six feet of the foot of the stairs. His head was bleeding, and his brains were visible. Going on further, towards the shop door, I saw Mrs. Marr lying dead, close by the street door, with her face downward, her feet against the door, and her head bleeding very much. I immediately opened the door, and let the watchman and several others in. I then began to look for Mr. Marr. I found him lying dead behind the counter, with his head very near the window. While Murray stood over the b body of Mr. Marr, Margaret Jewell and George Olney came from the kitchen and said that the Marr's 14-week-old infant son, also named Timothy, had also been killed. His throat had been slit so deeply that his head was nearly severed. All four individuals in the Marr house had also been bludgeoned over the head. By about this time, the police had begun to arrive. First on the scene was Charles Horton, who determined that robbery was either not the motive or that the murderer or murderers had been interrupted before they could actually carry out the robbery, as 152 pounds was found in a tin box, and there was also money in Mr. Marr's pockets. Also, he soon determined that another neighbor, a Mr. Parker, had heard some sort of thumping noise from the Marr's house and saw two men rushing out. This was confirmed by the discovery of two separate sets of footprints, marked with blood and sawdust, in the home. The sawdust was thought to be due to the presence of carpenters working in the home during the day, as opposed to necessarily any sort of clue. Nevertheless, Cornelius Hart, one of the carpenters, was questioned and released. A ripping chisel, a sort of pry bar used to remove nails from lumber, was found on the premises and at first thought to be the murder weapon, although later a blood-stained blood eight-pound maul was found. From early on, Due to the testimony of Mr. Parker and the discovery of two sets of footprints, it was thought, quote, obvious that there was more than one person involved in these foul and atrocious murders. It was believed that the guilty parties ran off when Margaret Jewell and Thomas Olney were ringing the bell and knocking on the door. The man who spoke to the servant girl then, and possibly the voice which replied to Olney, were undoubtedly the murderers. It was believed that when they were scared off, they ran through the backyard and into a vacant home, and from the vacant house into Pennington Street. The Thames River Police, under whose jurisdiction the murders fell, began their investigation, questioning the previously mentioned Cornelius Hart and a brother of Mr. Mars. A previous servant girl by the name of Wilkie was also questioned. She had been fired by Celia some months before, while she was still pregnant with her son. It was said that the girl threatened to kill Mrs. Marr, but any suspicion about her was later dismissed. There were rumors that some Portuguese man was in custody, as there were rumors that Marr had testified against the Portuguese man in court, but this was denied by the police. Suspicion also momentarily fell on a young man from the vicinity of Sun Tavern Fields by the name of Thomas Knight, whose whereabouts on the nights of the murders were unknown, who could not provide any real accounting of them, and who appeared at his home in a disheveled and dirty state. 
The name of Sun Tavern Fields no longer exists, but it's now a residential neighborhood directly across the Ratcliffe Highway from the Church of St. Paul's Shadwell. This was later disputed though, as the landlady of the house where Knight was lodging contradicted the statement she had formerly given to the police, and the publican of the King's Arms Tavern testified that Knight was at his pub until about 11 o'clock. Remember that name, it's part of a notably odd coincidence. Knight was questioned as to where he had been between the time he left the King's Arms at 11 and 12.15 when he returned home according to other witnesses questioned. He then accounted for his whereabouts satisfactorily and the suspicions against him were dismissed. A week later, the inquest into the deaths was held at the Jolly Sailors Pub by the coroner, John Wright Unwin, who was to conduct all three inquests relevant to this case. During the inquest then, it came to light that three men were seen loitering around Mars' shop shortly before the killings, looking into the windows. Finally, a verdict of, quote, willful murder against some person or persons unknown on each of the bodies was reached. The Mars were buried on December 15th in the churchyard of nearby St. George's in the East. December 19th saw two developments. First, the bloody mall was cleaned, and some initials were found roughly cut into the handle. The initials were either IP or JP. It was at first difficult to make out which. The same night, a man named John Turner returned to his rennet rooms above the King's Arms Public House at 81 New Gravel Lane. New Gravel Lane is now known as Garnet Street. The public hand of the King's Arms was 56-year-old John Williamson, who lived there with his 60-year-old wife Elizabeth. Also resident at the house was their 14-year-old granddaughter Catherine Stilwell, and a servant woman in her late 50s, Bridget Harrington. John Turner retired at about 11 o'clock, at which time, he said later, Williamson was preparing to close the King's Arms. It's interesting, it's an interesting coincidence, remember just a few moments ago when the suspicions against Knight were dismissed. Part of the dismissal of those uh, suspicions were a statement made by the publican of the King's Arms Tavern. And it's just a very interesting coincidence that only a few days later, the publican of the King's Arms Tavern is murdered. Um, I'm not saying Knight had anything to do with it. I think it sounds as if as like the suspicions against him were pretty ludicrous in the first place. Turner had just fallen asleep when he was awoken by some sort of noise. Lying there in the darkness, he heard the servant Bridget crying out, We are all murdered. He crept downstairs to see what was the matter, and peering through a glass door, he saw a man stooping over the body of Mrs. Williamson. A man who Turner said was wearing, quote, a, sh a drab, shaggy, bearskin coat. He heard the jingling of change, and though he couldn't really see what the man was doing, he assumed that he was rifling through Mrs. Williamson's pockets. He then heard another sound, quote, the deep sighs of a person in the agonies of death, and fled back upstairs. Once there, in a manner almost now stereotypically associated with jailbreaks and old cartoons and the like, he tied his bed sheets together, tied them to the bedpost, and climbed out the window to alert a night watchman. In a scene reminiscent of the one that had taken place at the Mars shop not two weeks before, the watchman knocked at the door and called for the Williamsons, and receiving no answer, a crowbar was procured and the door forced open. Once inside, they were greeted with a horrid scene one all too familiar to the neighborhood. Upon entering the tap room, 
the bodies of Mrs. of Mrs. Williamson and the maid, Bridget Harrington, were found besmeared with blood, with their heads toward the fireplace. The head of the latter was almost severed from the body, and the skull itself fractured in the most frightful manner, the brains protruding. Those who entered then went downstairs, and upon entering the cellar, they found the body of Mr. Williamson lying, lying lifeless, with a long iron bar under his body. His throat was dreadfully cut on the right side. The wound appeared to have been made in the front of the neck by some stabbing instrument, and afterwards enlarged when the instrument remained in the first incision. His hands appeared to be dreadfully cut and hacked, one of his thumbs being completely severed from his left hand. His right leg received a compound fracture, the bones of it being to be seen through the stocking. From his general appearance, it was evident he had made a vigorous resistance to the murderers. The iron bar found under his body was stained with blood, and it appeared to have been wrenched from a window in the cellar. After these discoveries, the watchman and the rest of his party went upstairs to find that Catherine Stilwell was still in bed, asleep and completely oblivious to the brutal murders that had taken place downstairs. A few people were taken into custody under suspicion of some involvement in the killings. One was named Sylvester Driscoll, who was found with several bottles of liquor concealed underneath his coat. The officers who apprehended him felt that this was suspicious and held him for questioning. Driscoll was later to give a good alibi, though, and was dismissed. Also taken into custody was a man named William Mitchell, who first attracted police notice while on London Bridge. He claimed to have been out hunting smugglers and gave police his name and address. Later, after the Williamson murders, murders became known to them, the policemen who had initially talked to him thought he resembled the description of the man that John Turner had seen in the house. The address Mitchell gave the officers later proved to be false, but he was nevertheless eventually tracked down. Mitchell was apparently discharged, as it seems he disappears from newspapers. The following description of him was given in the press. He is about six feet in height, dressed in a loose watchman's coat, which he states he borrowed. His small clothes bore evident marks of clay having been scraped off with a knife. Hi, we're the hosts of the Fresh Hell podcast. I'm Annie in Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Johanna in Vienna, Austria. Join us every Wednesday for a new terrible story. I focus mostly on cases in the United States, and not just true crime, like the terrifying axe murders on Smutty Nose Island, but also shocking stories like the New Jersey shark attacks of 1916. And I love to tell you about more obscure European cases. And let me tell you, Germany has produced more cannibals than one would think. So if you're a fan of true crime, but you also enjoy terrible stories of all sorts, give us a listen. We'll tell you everything you need to know, and then some. Come find Fresh Hell Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Auf Wiedersehen. Hope to see you soon. When the inquest into the Williamson murders was, he was held at the Black Horse Public House, some other facts came to light. John Turner said that just after he returned home, Mr. Williamson had been informed of, quote, a stout man with a large coat on loitering outside. 
Mr. Williamson had taken a candlestick and went after the man, but later returned and said that the man was gone, but that if he saw him, quote, he would send him where he ought or would not like to go. It was determined that the killer or killers made their entry through the cellar window. Footprints of hobnailed shoes were found outside. From their testimony, one could assume that there may have been two individuals involved. One who had entered through the basement window, killing Mr. Williamson, who, presum who presumably heard some noise and went downstairs, and one who may have been keeping watch outside, as Turner said he hadn't heard the sound of heavy footsteps, and one would think the footfalls of someone wearing hobnailed boots or shoes would certainly be audible. Samuel Melanoir testified that some girls in the area saw two men running from the direction of the King's Arms, quote, one in a white rough coat and the other a short man. Furthermore, it was thought to be likely that anyone fleeing the house would have to descend a muddy slope and would have become dirty, and this is the reason that I think the suspicions against William Mitchell shouldn't have been dismissed as quickly as they were, because his clothes were dirty. In the end, a verdict of willful murder by a person or persons unknown was reached. Shadwell police officers Hewitt and Hope were contacted on December 22nd by a sailmaker named John Harrison, who said that he had suspicions that a former shipmate of his from the East India ship Roxburgh Castle, a man named John Williams, may have been responsible. Williams was, according to news accounts of the time, quote, a seafaring man of short stature and with a lame leg. According to author Thomas De Quincey, he was, quote, a man of middle stature, slenderly built, rather thin but wiry, tolerably muscular, and clear of all superfluous flesh. His hair was of the most extraordinary and vivid color, viz. a bright yellow, something between an orange and yellow color. Harrison was lodging with Williams at a pub called the Pear Tree. Williams was known to have spent quite a bit of time at the King's Arms, and had been there around 7 o'clock on the evening of the murders. He did not return to the Pear Tree until about midnight. Upon questioning, Williams said that between those times he was visiting various doctors about his leg, and when questioned as to the quantity of silver he had on his person when arrested, claimed that he had pawned some clothing. He made no secret of having been at the King's Arms that night. His landlady, a Mrs. Vermilion, said that on the contrary, he was quite open about having seen the murdered people only hours before their deaths. Mr. Vermilion, the husband, was at that time in Newgate Prison as a debtor, and told police that there had been a mall in the house similar to that with which the Mars had been killed. There was at the Pear Tree a lodger named John Peterson, a Swedish sailor, currently at sea, and when a tool chest he left behind was examined, the maul that he had kept there was missing. Here we have an explanation of the initials found on the bloody hammer, JP. The working theory, obviously, was that John Williams, who would have had access to Peterson's tool chest, took the maul from it before going out to kill the Mars. When taken into custody, Williams had blood on his shirt. He told the police that this blood had resulted from a fight he'd gotten himself into while gambling. John Turner, the man who had escaped the King's Arms, and I now notice that virtually everyone in this case is named John, went to the Shadwell Police to see Williams, now in custody. While he testified that he had, indeed, been at the King's Arms on numerous occasions, he said that, though he didn't necessarily get the best look at the killer on the night of the murders, he wasn't at all sure this was the man.
His name was actually John Murphy, from Bainbridge and County Down in Ireland. Though he often purported himself to be from Campbelltown on the Kintyre Peninsula in western Scotland, and did so when he joined the crew of the ship Roxburgh Castle, bound for Brazil in August of 1810. I'll probably continue to refer to him as Williams, simply because that's how he's most often named. At the time he joined the ship, he also assumed the name John Williamson. He had previously been crewman on board the Henry Addington, the Nottingham, and the Dover Castle. It was while serving on the Nottingham that he had received the injury to his leg which caused him to be lame. On the Dover Castle, Murphy slash Williams slash Williamson served alongside none other than future silk merchant Timothy Marr, whose family had been the first slain. Captain Hutchinson of the Roxburgh Castle, apparently not aware of his previous career, had his suspicions that due to Williams' age at the time he joined, he had, quote, been driven to that line of life by his former bad conduct. This is also a puzzling statement, since the captain of that ship was actually John Beaven. So, who exactly this Hutchinson was, I don't know. There was an implication that while the ship was anchored in Rio de Janeiro, he may have been involved in robbing a man. It was on this voyage, while the ship was in the southern Caribbean off the Guianas, that there was an abortive mutiny on board the Roxburgh Castle. In this, Williams seems to have taken part. While he claimed it was only unwillingly, Captain Hutchinson and John Harris both claimed that he was a willing participant. It was also Harris who provided a link between Williams and another individual named earlier in the episode. Cornelius Hart, one of the pair of carpenters who had been doing work at the Mars residence, and whose ripping chisel, you'll remember, was found at the house. The link was also confirmed by the other carpenter, John Fitzpatrick. Fitzpatrick said that, in fact, Williams and Hart had been drinking together at a pub called the Ship and Royal Oak at about 11.15 on the night of the Mar murder. All this determined, Williams was remanded to Cold Bath Fields Prison in the borough of Clerkenwell. It was here that, on December 28, 1811, John Williams hung himself with his scarf in his prison cell. Several guards and prisoners thought that this was strange, as the presumed killer had been in a good mood only shortly before, expressing confidence that he would shortly be exonerated. This assertion led to theories that Williams had been murdered by some other party involved in the murders, likely to avoid their being named by Williams or to close the case, as it were, and precipitate the end of the investigation. Nevertheless, John Williams was tried posthumously. Several witnesses came forward. Most were, for, were fellow boarders of Williams's at the Pear Tree. One man testified as to finding muddy stockings hidden behind a chest in, the, in Williams's room. Another with finding a bloody razor in a hole in the wall. Another connected Williams to the theft of a chisel from John Peterson's tool chest. Also testifying was Margaret Jewell, who said that on the night of the Mar murders, quote, precisely as she emerged from the shop door, she noticed on the opposite side of the street, by the light of the lamps, a man's figure, stationary at the instant, but in the next instant slowly moving. It struck her that from his carriage when in motion, and from the apparent inclination of his person, he must be looking at number 29. Shortly before midnight, she also claimed, the watchman had also seen the man, and had come into Mars' shop and told him about the man. And so, even with a dead defendant, the court returned a guilty verdict, 
It was decided that the body of John Williams should be carted through the neighborhood. He's so recently terrified. At 11 o'clock a.m., Williams's body was loaded onto an inclined plank, on which was placed the maul and the chisel from the site of the Marr murders and the iron bar found underneath Mr. Williamson's body. And with this, the macabre parade left Coldbath Fields. They made their way to Ratcliffe Highway, where, according to De Quincey, when the cart came opposite the late Mr. Marr's house, a halt was made for nearly a quarter of an hour. Then the procession proceeded toward the Thames and looped back along New Gravel Lane, where a similar pause was made in front of the King's Arms. Some sources recount that during this pause, the driver of the cart whipped the face of the corpse several times. The truth of this notwithstanding, they then proceeded to the crossroads of Cable Street and Cannon Street Road. Then, as De Quincey continues, those who accompanied the procession arrived at a grave already dug six feet down. The remains of John Williams were tumbled out of the cart and lowered into this hole, and then someone hammered a stake through his heart. Two men were jailed, charged with picking the pockets of onlookers at the burial. About a century later, workmen who were laying new water mains dug up John Williams's body. The skeleton, they said, was face down, as well as staked. So, face down, staked, and at a crossroads. Clearly, this is an outgrowth of ways to dispose of suspected vampires, which is also not surprising because a suicide was thought extremely, extremely likely to become a vampire. It's said that when the body was retrieved, the skull was put on display at the Crown and Dolphin pub on one corner of the crossroads. Though the Crown and Dolphin is still there, the skull no longer is, and the whereabouts of the skeleton or skull are unknown. For a few years afterwards, confessions were still incoming claiming responsibility for the killings. Two were arrested in September 1812, and in June 1815, another seafaring man from the HMS Spartan confessed to having been part of the plot to murder the Mars. His name was William Barron, although it was later determined that his actual name was William Benson. He said that in 1810, he had boarded the ship Expedition, under the name John Shears. He said that after about a year's time, another sailor named Thomas Blessington introduced him to a group of 11 men, one an Irishman named Kilkenny, who were planning to rob a house in New Gravel Lane. Despite the address, he claimed this turned out to have been the house of Timothy Marr. Though he gave a fairly accurate account of the particulars of the murder itself, he had claimed it was summertime when the crime occurred, and that it was only dusk, rather than midnight, which, combined with the address he gave, which was of course actually that of the King's Arms, I think it's safe to say the sailor had nothing to do with it. So, was John Williams actually guilty? T.A. Critchley and P.D. James's book on the Ratcliffe Highway murders the mall and the pear tree cast a bit of doubt on what exactly his involvement was, pointing to people like Cornelius Hart and William Ablis. Hart had al has already been described, and Ablis was another sailor who had served on the Roxburgh Castle with Williams. He too was lame, had taken part in the mutiny, and was apparently much more of a violent fellow than was John Williams. He and Williams had been drinking at the King's Arms the evening of the murders. It was rumored that along with Williams, he had borne a grudge against Timothy Marr. Personally, I think there's enough evidence to suggest Williams had at least some role in the killings, though I don't really think he was the only one responsible for them either. As an apparently fairly small man, 
He may have been a lookout of sorts, while another, larger and stronger man wielded the fatal bludgeons. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to the email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash forgdark. That's F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. Until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.